chapter one of the egregious english this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by david wales the egregious english by t w h crossland chapter one apollo it has become the englishman's habit one might almost say the englishman's instinct to take himself for the head and front of the universe the order of creation began we are told in protoplasm it has achieved at length the englishman herein are the culmination and ultimate glory of evolutionary processes nature like the seventh standard boy in a board school can get no higher she has made the englishman and her work therefore is done for the continued progress of the world and all that is in it the englishman will make due provision he knows exactly what is wanted and by himself it shall be supplied there is little that can be considered distinguishingly english which does not reflect this point of view as an easy-going entirely confident imperturbable piece of arrogance the englishman has certainly no mammalian compeer even in the blackest of his troubles he perceives that he is great i shall muddle through he says he is expected and understood to muddle through and muddle through or not he invariably believes he has done it sheer complacency bolsters him up on every hand at his going forth the rest of the world is fain to abase itself in the dust he is the strong man the white man of white men he is the rich clean sportsman the incomparable the fearless the intolerable and by englishmen the world has learned not to mean britain the world has been taught to discriminate it has regarded the britannic brotherhood and though it forgets that the gael and the celt are britons it takes its englishmen for a briton only with a difference on the other hand it is keenly sensible of sundry facts as that it is the englishman who rules the waves and the englishman upon whose dominions the sun never sets that the british flag is the english flag the british army the english army and the british navy the english navy and that scotland and ireland with wales are english appanages it would be foolish to assert that the englishman has greatly concerned himself in either the promulgation or the acceptance of these notions but he holds them dear and they are ineradicably planted in his subconsciousness one is inclined to think however that while the supremacy and superiority of the englishman have been received without traverse in his own dominions there are those in outer darkness on the continent in ireland and even in scotland who admit no such supremacy and no such superiority nay there are persons breathing the breath of life who so far from looking upon the englishman with the eyes with which the early savage must have regarded captain cook look upon him with the eyes with which captain cook regarded the early savage in ireland particularly hatred of the english has become a deep-grounded national characteristic the french dislike of perfidious albion may be reckoned to a great extent an intermittent matter it sputters and flares when a fashoda or a boer war comes along and it has a way of finding its deadliest expression in caricature but the irish hatred is as persistent and concrete as it is ancient in scotland the feeling about the english amounts in the main to good-humoured tolerance touched with a certain amazement 
the least cultivated of scotsmen and such a man is quite a different being from the least cultivated of englishmen will tell you that the english are chiefly notable by reason of their profound ignorance and a ridiculous passion for the dissipation of money the scot of the middle class thinks his neighbour is a feckless foolish person who would pass muster if he could be serious and has got what he possesses by good luck rather than by good management up to a point both are right for the english in the mass are at once much more ignorant and much less thrifty than the people of scotland and their good nature and happy-go-luckiness are things to set a scot moralizing years ago matthew arnold put the right names on the two more creditable and powerful sections of english society the aristocracy he set down for barbarians the middle class for philistines the aristocracy were inaccessible to ideas he said the middle class admired and loved the aristocracy it is so to this day and so to an extent which is in entire consonance with the circumstance that for sheer stupidity the englishman of the upper class is without parallel while the englishman of the middle class cannot be paralleled for snobbishness arnold's complaint that neither class was a reading class or at all devoted to the higher matters still holds the great broad-shouldered genial englishman whom tennyson sang and at whom arnold jibed is still with us that he is as great and as broad-shouldered and as genial as ever nobody will deny and broadly speaking his outlook upon life remains exactly what it was to be ruddy and healthy to go out mornings with dogs to dine hilariously and dance evenings to be generous to the poor and to honour oneself and the king are the rule of his life if he be a barbarian and to ape these things and consider them gifts of price if he be a philistine since arnold however the englishman egregious though he undoubtedly was has taken unto himself a new and altogether alarming demerit out of his love of health and ease and security and pleasure and well-ordered materialism there has sprung up a trouble which is like to cost him exceeding dear a trouble in fact which if he be not careful will go far to emasculate him if not wholly to destroy him of the higher matters as has been said he has taken but the smallest heed writer fellows uh, painter fellows philosopher johnnies and so forth are not of his world except in so far as they may entertain his women-folk or deck his halls with commercial canvas or assist him in the eking out of his small talk before dessert it is not to be expected of him that he should take to his heart persons whom he cannot by any possibility understand even arnold could forgive him that failing it was the build of the man the breed and constitution of him that justified him but since being english he has found his way to the unpardonable sin it was well that he should despise persons who however much they might think did little and got little for doing it it was well that brains which could not sit a horse and preferred bed to the moors and had no rent-roll should be despised it would have been well too if that other kind of brains which beginning with nothing ends in millionairedom and flagrant barbarianism might also have continued to be despised and to be kept at arm's length 
the great broad-shouldered genial englishman however has succumbed park lane has become a ghetto my lord's house parties reek of gentlemen with noses and names ending in baum and the english houses of parliament the finest club in europe the mother of parliaments the most dignified assemblage under the sun is just a branch of the stock exchange as the exceedingly clever young man who recently wrote a book about the scot might say this shows what the english really are it has been remarked and possibly not without truth that the scot keeps the sabbath and everything else he can lay his hands upon he is credited with being the perfect money-grubber his desire for competence we have been told by the clever young man before mentioned has blighted his soul and brought him into opprobrium among turks and chinamen well the scot does look after money he desires competence he loves independence and when he can get them ease and pleasure are gratifying to him if he comes off the rock and attains affluence he is not averse to the goodnesses that affluence commands he will start a castle and a carriage and a coat of arms with the best of them he will lift up his family and leave his children well provided for in these connections he is just as human as the next man but he never has played and he never will play the english game of lavishness and wastefulness and swaggering profusion and least of all will he play it on a basis of undesirable association the scotsman who has compassed wealth even though he be the son of a mole-catcher or a sweetie wife or a glasgow beer-seller can always remember that there is such a thing as spiritual integrity and though he may or may not boo and boo and boo in accordance with the good old kindly english legend he certainly will not do it in jews houses this i take it is where he has some little advantage over englishmen perhaps no finer indication of the english spirit and of the greed and corruption that have overtaken it could have been offered than has been offered by the trend of recent events in south africa to go thoroughly over the ground in such an essay as the present is of course impossible to state the arguments for both sides would be to reproduce writing of which everybody is heartily tired the battling newspapers have said their say and we are just beginning to feel the comfort of a more or less reasonable settlement all that need be said here is that the englishman has not come out of this war with anything like the honour and the glory and the eclat that he has been accustomed to expect of himself in similar undertakings his bodily prowess his hardihood his spartan capacity for withstanding the rigours of campaigning his military abilities and his very patriotism have all had to be called in question during the past two and a half years when he went out to the fray his cry was ha ha and the war was to be over in six weeks he had the finest equipment the finest munitions the finest men the finest system the world had seen he was as fit as a fiddle and as hard as nails and his love of music prompted him to take a piano with him then the english and they that dwell in outer darkness saw many things they have been learning their lesson ever since they have learned that in a fight the great broad-shouldered genial englishman instead of being worth three frenchmen is worth about the fiftieth part of a boer farmer they have learned that the great broad-shouldered genial englishman is not above selling spavined horses and stinking beef to the country that he loves 
and they have learned that when a great broad-shouldered genial englishman is discovered in his incompetence or his culpable negligence or his dishonour it is the business of all the other great broad-shouldered genial englishmen to get round him and screen him from the public gaze and swear that he is a maligned and misunderstood man the incidents of the war alone without any backing or the smallest distortion or exaggeration have been quite sufficient to show that there is something rotten in the condition of the english it has been a tale of shame and ignominy and disaster from beginning to end it has resulted in a peace which practically settles very little and an inquiry with closed doors verily apollo must have a care for his reputation in the pantheon End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 The Sportsman The Englishman who is not a sportsman dares not mention the circumstance. In the counties he must shoot and hunt or be forever damned. In the towns he must have daily dealings with a starting-price bookmaker and hourly news from the race-courses and the cricket-patches. Otherwise Englishmen decline to know him. I am a sportsman, sir, is the English shibboleth it is the english love of manly sports that has made the english paramount in every land and in every sea the lord chief justice of england rode stroke for his college in oxford versus cambridge in eighteen fifteen otherwise he would not be lord chief justice of england at eighteen the lord chancellor was one of the best sprinters of his day otherwise he would never have dandled his little legs on the woolsack sir henry campbell bannerman is a keen shot and was one of a party of seven who made the biggest bag on record in eighteen sixty five otherwise he would never have been leader of the opposition mr henry labouchere is one of our most brilliant and daring steeplechase riders otherwise he would never have owned truth mrs ormiston chant is a cricket enthusiast so are the archbishop of canterbury mr joseph chamberlain and mr tommy bowles lord roberts can take a hand at croquet with the best young woman out of girton and mr john morley understands a racehorse almost as well as he understands the encyclopedist in fact the english eminent are either sportsmen or nothing and all the other english follow suit now and again somebody gets up and points out that betting is a great evil whereupon the duke of devonshire opens one eye and says that he never had a shilling on a horse in his life then everybody says that horse-racing is good for the breed of horses employing large amounts of capital and large numbers of honest persons and on the whole a manly and profitable pastime incidentally too it transpires that fox-hunting is an equally noble and english form of sport and that when farmers cease from puppy-walking britain may very well drop the epithet great from her name or perhaps mr kipling fresh from the unpleasant truths of south africa conceives a distich or two as to flannelled fools and muddied oafs in response there is an immediate and emphatic english howl why cannot the little man stick to his recessionals how dare he call sportsmen like rangi and trot and bloggs and biffkin flannelled fools much less the tottenham hotspurs and sheffield united muddy oafs is it not true that the battle of waterloo was won on the playing fields of eton were not flannelled fools and muddied oafs among the first to throw up their home ties and fling themselves into the imminent breach when the war broke out 
are not cricket and football healthy and admirable old english sports and pleasantly calculated to keep the youth of the country out of much worse mischief on saturday afternoons and so on right down the line the english are sportsmen sport is bred in the bone of them less than a century ago they were cock-fighting and man-fighting in the splendid english way they would be doing it yet if their own stupid laws did not prevent them instead they race horses and pursue the fox watch cricket and football matches and play tennis and croquet and ping-pong it is sport that keeps england sweet if it were not for sport the english would cease to have red faces and husky voices and check suits one presumes too that if it were not for sport they would entirely lose their sense of fair play their love of honest dealing and that spirit of self-sacrifice which notoriously informs all their actions it is sport that has made the english the justest as well as the greatest of the nations it is sport which keeps her unspotted of the lower vices such as drunkenness indolence and misspent saturday afternoons it is sport which gives her a standard of manliness an all-day press and a platform upon which prince and pauper the highest and the lowest meet as common men long live sport perhaps it is pardonable in a scot to note that the only forms of sport which can be pronounced sane and devoid of offence came out of scotland the grand instance in point of course is the ancient and royal game of golf without attempting to say a word that would tend to exaggerate the value of a pastime which is beloved by all scotsmen and not without its appreciators even in england it seems fitting to remark that in golf you have a game which while every whit as healthy as manly and as invigorating as horse-racing cricket football and the rest of them can never by any chance become the mere kill-time of the idle unparticipating spectator or the prey of the professional the ready-made bookmaker and the halfpenny journal as to other scottish sports one need not here particularize but they are all healthy and honest in the broadest sense and with the single exception of football which has been corrupted by the english they have not been allowed to deteriorate into vices the exploitation of popular pastimes by covetous and unprincipled persons is an unmistakable sign of national decadence in england that exploitation goes on without let or hindrance and in almost every department protest brings merely contempt and objurgation upon the head of the protester and the national virility continues to be slowly but surely sapped away that the english notion of sport should permit of the orgies of bloodshed rowdyism and partisanship which takes place in the coverts and on football fields race-courses and cricket-grounds serves to indicate that in spite of all that has been said and sung in its praises the english notion of sport is an exceedingly sad and sorry one it is natural that a people given over to display and the getting of money for the sake of the more unnecessary luxuries money can buy should in a great measure lose its taste for outdoor sports of the primal order the english are losing that taste at a rate which can leave no doubt as to the ultimate upshot 
in brief the englishman as sportsman worth the name seems to be disappearing and in his place england will have the adipose plethoric mechanical slayer of birds who goes to his shoot in a bath-chair and the cadaverous undersized saturday afternoon zealot the chief joys of whose existence are the cracking of filberts and the kicking of umpires End of chapter two